Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and for the past couple of weeks now, I've been working my way through a little bit of a mini-series about Halloween. And when I say Halloween, I don't necessarily mean the the film series, the, the Halloween film series about Michael Myers and stalking babysitters and all that stuff. I mean films that in some way or another I can kind of half-ass tie in with the season of Halloween, right? So that's basically that that's basically what I've been up to here. And in a weird kind of way, today's today's episode this episode uh, th- this episode's subject matter, maybe that's the best way to put it. This episode's subject matter, it's like on the one hand, it's the most obvious thing to talk about if you're doing a series about movies set in or are about or in some other way can be tied into the season of Halloween. Today's today's subject matter, I think, very neatly falls into that. But guys, in in terms of chronology, never mind the, the order in which these episodes are released, but the chronology in which these these episodes are being recorded, this is actually the last one that I'm recording, and not the last one to be released, obviously, but this is the last one that I'm recording, and the reason for that is because I really struggled finding an angle with this. Does that make sense? I kind of had a, uh, I just had a little bit of a hard time, shall we say, uh, trying to think not just of something original to say uh, about this movie, which if you've seen the artwork for this week's episode, you already know that I'm going to be talking about The Crow from 1994. The Yeah, there is, there, there is a bit of a challenge. You know, what can I say about The Crow that somebody else hasn't already said and said better? So there's that. But the other thing is, I, it, I don't think it was so much a question of finding the inspiration. I don't know. It's just for, for some reason, I just kind of struggled with figuring out what it is that I wanted to talk about. Now, the rewatch of The Crow that I did last night somewhat helped with that. You know, it was a little bit of an amelioration in as much as the the rewatch, it actually did give me, as obvious as it may seem, it did give me something of... It, it did. I, I did notice something that I never noticed before, put it that way. So so there's that. But the other thing that I did was I one of the one of the songs from the Crow soundtrack that is without question the most closely tied in with this movie. You know, certain certain songs really do define a movie. Like when when I think I guess a good example of what I'm talking about, I'm kind of tripping over my words a little bit because I'm trying to find just the right way to say this, but one of my favorite superhero films of all time is Batman Returns. And at least in the geek fraternity, choosing Batman Returns as one of your favorite superhero films of all time, that's not necessarily a politically correct decision. That's something that you kind of have to justify a little bit. But for me, what I want from superhero film, by and large, Batman Returns delivers on, you know? And so there's that. But there's also the fact that there's a song on, and I mean a song song, on the Bat... It's otherwise the Danny Elfman film score for Batman Returns. This is the only, like, song on there. The rest of it is all the... uh, the uh, pieces and the cues that Danny Elfman uh, composed for uh, to underscore the film. There is a song, though. Uh, it's called Face to Face by Susie and the Banshees. And that song was written specifically for the Batman Returns soundtrack. And man, it sounds like it. You know, those lyrics really do sum up the the purpose and the promise of Batman Returns. And I would say most specifically relating to, I think it's pretty clear that the song is written from the point of view of Selena Kyle, 
in this complicated relationship she has with Batman. And so it's not necessarily the perfect summary of the movie, since the movie has more going for it than just Bruce and Selina's relationship. But at least for that part of the movie, that song perfectly sums it all up. And I would say that more or less the same thing can be said about <clears throat> a, a song from the 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 crow soundtrack uh, this is uh this is a song by the band the cure and the song obviously is burn now all these years that i've enjoyed the crow i i consider myself somewhat a fan of this movie i guess i just never really paid all that much attention to the lyrics now in my defense uh robert smith which is to say the lead singer of the cure he... I don't know what it is that I'm looking for in a frontman for a rock band, but whatever it is, Robert Smith just doesn't really give that to me. You know, it, I'm not going to sit here and say that he mumbles the lyrics, but he does kind of mumble the lyrics a little bit. And so unless you... He's, he's one of the few singers that actually sings in a British accent, you know, if that makes any sense. And... I don't know. For, it's just for some reason, it's always been really hard for me to to parse his lyrics. And the, the hell of it is, the guy is an amazing lyricist, but it's just, it gets kind of buried by the fact that I, I don't know. There's just, and, and this is not to speak of the fact that this whole goth thing has never, I mean, yeah, I like one Susie and the Banshees song. That doesn't mean that I'm just this big goth guy, you know? And really the same thing goes with The Cure, right? Now, that's, maybe an unnecessarily long disclaimer at, to use as a lead-in into saying, holy fuck, googling these lyrics? I guess, I like I say, I guess I just never realized, number one, how good these lyrics are, number two, how well they sum up, uh, again, I think this is, this isn't necessarily written from the point, uh, the uh, point of view of Eric Draven, which is to say the lead character in this movie, maybe... I don't know, it's, maybe it's all in how you look at it, like some kind of an omniscient narrator. Maybe it's written from the point of view of the crow. I mean, I don't really know. But, I mean, I don't... It's Parts of this seem like maybe they could be written from Eric Draven's point of view, and maybe other parts from, like I say, from like a narrator, uh, an omniscient third-person narrator, or maybe, like I say, the crow, or something. I don't know. But um, it's just... The, the point of it is, this was written specifically for the, the Crow soundtrack, and that's something that I guess I just, all these years, I've never really been completely aware of. I mean, the movie's been out for like 25 fucking years, and somehow I just never realized that, that this had been written specifically for the movie. And again, my defense for that is the fact that I'm not a big Cure guy, so take that for whatever you think it's worth. But anyway, the point is, you read these lyrics, and, well, hell, I'm just going to read some of the lyrics for you here right now. Don't look, don't look, the shadows breathe, whispering me away from you. Don't wake at night to watch her sleep. You know that you will always lose, this trembling, adored, tussled, mad, er, bird-mad girl. But every night I burn, but every night I call your name. Every night I burn, every night I fall again. Oh, don't talk of love, the shadows purr murmuring me away from you. Don't talk of worlds that never were. The end is all that's ever true. There's nothing you can ever say, nothing you can ever do. Still, every night I burn, every night I... And it just kind of goes on from there, you know. Verse, chorus, verse, and... One of the things... Number one, I just like songs that... They have a chorus, but they kind of mix it up. It's a little bit different every time you hear it. You know, different lyrics, or maybe even... I don't know, just some kind of difference, you know? I don't like hearing the same fucking chorus just again and again and again. I like it when, in a weird kind of way, the chorus is almost a set of verses all by itself, you know? A good example of what I'm talking about is um, Don Henley's Boys of Summer, where there are some common elements in each uh, recitation of the chorus, but each chorus, there's, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to that, you know? Uh, each one is just a little bit different from the one that came before, and I kind of like that, you know? And we get that with, uh, well, we get that somewhat with uh, Burn, so there's that. 
but I don't know, man. I mean, just on, on this rewatch, one of the things that, and not for the first time, you understand, but one of the things I find myself yearning for once again, and guys, this has been an element of my Crow viewing experience literally from day one, okay? Literally from day one. Why? Oh, why? Please tell me why can't we get a, a Batman movie that looks like this? You know, and I mean, in, in, in a certain kind of way, The Crow in today's world, it is maybe a little bit dated and all that. You know, certain things like certain fashions or hair designs or just, you know, whatever. All that stuff, you know, the, the different styles uh, of hair, the different styles of clothes. Some things haven't really aged all that well. Although, I don't know, I mean, I've on more than one occasion, I've been accused of being stuck in the 90s. So maybe none of this is really... A criticism. But anyway, whatever. My point is that, you know, whether or not you think certain aspects of The Crow are dated or not, the one thing I hope that we can all acknowledge is that this isn't, in a certain kind of way, I realize that this is probably meant to be Detroit, but I mean like this burned out, withered up, just fucking haunted, uh, hell erupted, uh, version of Detroit. Like, this version of Detroit in-universe that we see in The Crow, unbeknownst to anybody, was built on a hellmouth or something, you know? I mean, it's just... This is so much of what I've always wanted Gotham City to look like in a film. And to date, we haven't really ever gotten that. So, I don't know. I mean, I guess in a certain sense elements of Batman v Superman's depiction of Gotham City kind of, sort of, at times, from a certain point of view, sort of resemble what we see of Detroit here. But it's it's one of those things that you, you kind of have to squint a little bit. And it's only like one or two or three different aspects. But I don't know. This is basically, if you ever want to know what Magnus wants Gotham City to look like in a in a Batman feature film. Just pop in the crow, baby, because there it is. It's right there. So so there's that. Now, I guess really to kind of take this really from the beginning, my origin story with the crow, it uh basically I missed this movie when I uh when it was in theaters. And the reason for that was because when I was in junior high, uh Getting to the movie theater, it really was a challenge back in those days, you know, because first off, you know, there's the fact that you're you're getting up there a little bit in age, you know, 13, 14, you know, you're getting up there a little bit and you don't necessarily want mommy and daddy to chauffeur you to the theater to see a movie. And even if you were willing to do that, you're I'm. it's like I don't need to see this movie from start to finish to understand this is really not a movie that I want to see with my parents. This is more of like get a big gang of my friends together and we can all go see it together and leave the parents at home, right? So there's that, right? You don't really... It's, I never minded being seen in public with my parents, but I did mind being being seen getting dropped off by my parents, you know, like going someplace. God, I, just, I hated that. So... So there was that. Then there was the fact that really none of my friends really wanted to see The Crow. It's like I was the guy in the room that wanted to see it. But, um, you know, uh, all my friends, you know, uh, Ryan, Bevo, Justin, everyone. Nobody fucking wanted to see this movie, right? And so it's here. Once again, it's just it's Magnus all by himself. And, you know, I've never gone to see a movie alone. And I, you know, even to this day, I haven't. You know, some people mind. I don't know. It's just, I've always felt kind of weird about that. You know, it's, it always just seemed like going to the movie theater. This is something that, this is just something that like you were intended to do with others. And I don't know. So, so there's that. All right. So long story short, or actually, you know what, maybe we're even beyond that at this point. Uh, but short story long, perhaps, uh, I basically had to wait for video on this. Now, what we're talking about is VHS in the mid '90s, and that's not—that's not a really good way to watch anything, I don't think. Nevertheless, VHS, at least 
it, it, it was a good enough presentation of the crow that honestly I did kind of lament the fact that I couldn't see this in theaters. Like, and even now, like even today there, like sometimes, you know, you, you miss these movies in theaters and you're like, ah, well, I can just wait for video. Who the hell cares? But then there are other ones that come along and, and you just like look back at it and you think, damn, you know, actually I, I kind of do wish that I could have seen that movie when it was playing in theaters, but too late for that. So anyway, so there was that, but I don't know, maybe, maybe watching this movie as I did, you know, rented it, brought it home and it was like late, late, late at night. And, you know, I had all my junk food with me, you know, all my candy and my Coke and my popcorn and all that fun stuff. And maybe that's the best way for a, however old I was like 13 or 14 or uh, I don't even know. When did, I don't know, 12, however old I was, uh, the night that I watched this. Uh, maybe that's not a bad way to to get into the movie. I don't know. But it's, again, it's just, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I look back at it now and think it, it really would have been kind of nice to, to see this in theater. So anyway, but just to kind of finally get down to brass tacks a little bit with this movie, Basically, I don't know if I necessarily want to go through the Wikipedia summary, you know, like line by line by line, because I think anyone who's listening to this show, who's interested in listening to this episode of my show, odds are you've probably seen The Crow at least once or twice, and so there's probably not a whole lot to be gained from going through the the uh the synopsis of this movie you know line by didactic line you know it's i just don't see much of a point in that so but i do nevertheless want to hit upon at least a little bit of the wikipedia synopsis and also dwell at least a little bit on something that's not specifically included in the wikipedia synopsis but as i say i did notice for the first time when i was doing my rewatch last night so anyway one of the things I kind of like about this is, uh, or actually one of the things that I never noticed is, I've wondered if the the beginning of the Crow film is kind of an homage to uh, the first issue of Watchmen, right? Because the Crow starts off with a bunch of police investigating a, a, a break-in slash murder where, at least in the Crow, one of the victims was thrown out of a window and and um, landed several stories thrown out of a window from several stories up and then landed on the pavement below, fell to his death. Which sounds an awful lot like the way that the first issue of Watchmen begins. So, I, hmm, that that's kind of interesting. And so I've wondered more than once, like, is is there is there an influence that's going on there? Keep in mind, guys, I've never actually read the Crow comic, you know, the original miniseries by James O. Barr that inspired, in some way or another, this movie. I've been given to understand that there are some pretty fucking significant differences between the Crow movie versus the Crow comic. And it's not to say that one is better than the other or worse than the other or what, but people who have bothered reading the comic say, yeah, they're both good. But they're just fucking very different from each other. So just keep that in mind. So I don't know what to think of that. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm not completely sure of how the Crow comic starts. But I'm very familiar with how the first issue of Watchmen starts. And uh, doing the rewatch last night, guys, I, you know, I got to tell you, I just sort of wondered about that. And for some reason, I just never really connected the dots on that before. I don't know. So anyway, so so there's that. Now, the actual resurrection scene uh, and then the, I guess, the follow-up from that, Eric, first off, just struggling to accept the fact that he was dead and is now alive, and n n number one, and then number two, it's it's time now to draw some blood. There's There's that going on, too. So, I don't know. The... For some reason, I just connected to that on an emotional level. I just connected to that whole experience more now than I did in the past. And I'm kind of operating on the assumption that the reason for that is because I'm married now. And 
Yeah, Eric and Shelley were never actually married to each other, but in a in a deeper kind of way, the movie says they really were married. They just hadn't made it official yet, but they basically they were married. Let's be real. And for some reason, it's just everything to do with Eric and Shelley and just their love story, or in some, or maybe the better way to put it is the lack thereof. But whatever, their love story in this film, I just connected to it a little bit more this time around. It kind of got me a little bit more in the feels is what I'm trying to say. So, I don't know. It's it, it it's kind of interesting how your perceptions of things, your your entry point into, you know, different comics or different novels, different movies, different fuck whatever, how how your entry point can kind of change and evolve over time. You get something out of this now that you maybe didn't get out of it 25 years ago when you first watched it. I don't know. So, anyways. So there's that. The other thing is a uh, a recurring element of, of this movie, and I'm going to develop this a little bit more shortly, but uh, from the get-go, a recurring element of this movie is the flashbacks that Eric has to the night of his and Shelley's death, or deaths. Basically, he, at certain times and in... And with different triggers, I mean, kind of the same trigger, but at the same time, sort of different triggers. He, he relives, he gets these flashes of insight and relives the events of that night, sort of personally and in real time, including the stuff that he wasn't actually around to see. He didn't live long enough to see like Shelley's assault. Let's just call it what it is. And then the 30 hours that she was in the hospital in, in pain, she was suffering, dying, and then finally did die. You know, things like that. Here again, I mean, it, it, it's just, it's hard to put into words, but it's, for some reason, I just got a better sense of that. Oh, I get it. This is, this is based on touch, basically tactile contact with anyone who was closely associated with the events of that night, whether it's the, the, the thugs that, killed him and raped her or Albrecht, the, the uh, beat cop who stayed with Shelley and really to the bitter end and then did everything in his power to, in, uh, in, in, to investigate this home invasion and all to no avail, of course. But, you know, and so I don't know why, but it's just, I got a clear sense of that this time than I did before. And I guess it, I guess what I just I, I what I wasn't fully processing before is that we get sort of flashes of insight, these little uh, kind of miniature collages, these things that Eric is seeing. But what I think we're supposed to infer from all of these different flashes and flashbacks and uh, the the collage effect and all that stuff, I think what we're supposed to infer infer is that every time it happens, Eric is reliving that sequence of events over again, number one, in real time, and number two, as though it's happening to him personally. And so his empathy and his sympathy are both being kind of stimulated here a little bit. And so in a certain kind of way, you could say that the the criminals, they didn't just shoot him and drop his ass out a window. Thanks to these flashbacks, now Eric knows what it's like to be shot and have his ass dropped out a window, but then also get stabbed, raped, uh, and then suffer and die in a hospital for th for 30 hours. For lack of a better way of saying it, from firsthand experience. Does that make sense? So I guess I wasn't really, again, I guess I just wasn't really cognizant of that before. And this rewatch, it just kind of brought that home to me a, a little bit more clearly. And specifically, the scene that I'm kind of talking around here is that scene in Albrecht's apartment when Eric shows up and he and Albrecht are just kind of shooting the shit. And then Eric, kind of, sort of, knowing kind of what was about to happen, he just uh, grabs Albrecht by the noggin, knowing what he's about to see. And then, sure enough, uh, Shelley's 30-hour ordeal in the hospital... He experiences that for himself. And again, you get the idea 
all fucking 30 hours all at once, you know? And so that would suck. And so there's that. But specifically the fact that this is all set off by tactile contact. Uh, basically touching others who were deeply associated with him or with Shelley or with the events of that night or just fucking whatever. That's, that's the real trigger. But also there are other triggers seeing too much Halloween stuff, uh, or fiery imagery or, or just anything like that. That's another trigger that makes them relive what happened. And this is one of those things where, I have to assume there's some sort of antecedent in this that was adapted from the comic. Maybe well, maybe not well. But it's generally well known that The Crow as a comic book is I don't want I don't know as I as I want to go so far as to call it wish fulfillment. But you maybe are within your rights if you want to say that elements of Eric Draven's experiences in the comic book, maybe he's kind of sort of James O'Barr's alter ego, you know, uh, who's to say? Basically, uh, I don't know a whole lot of details here. This isn't something, you know, all due respect to James O'Barr and, and his loss and everything, his grief and his pain. This isn't something that I've really delved into a whole lot you know i haven't really done a deep dive into this guy's personal life and tried to figure out just where the fuck's all this coming from but basically the seeds of the crow as a comic book were planted when james obar's then girlfriend uh, was killed in a car crash that's my understanding basically she she was killed in a car crash and as one might imagine james obar felt some kind of way about that and so uh, maybe I, I don't know if I, if I necessarily want to put, if I want to crawl inside his head and try to diagnose him from a distance or anything, but people who are more familiar with the source material and his personal life than I am say that maybe there's a little bit of, um, vicarious, uh, maybe not like, maybe there's a certain amount of catharsis for Obar that's going on in the Crow comic book, the original miniseries. Eric is just on a killing spree in the comic book in a way that I don't really think he is in the movie. I mean, yeah, he goes around killing a fucking shit ton of people in the movie. Don't get me wrong, but there's just everything I've ever heard about the comic book makes me think it's just so much more visceral than anything that we see in the movie. And I don't know. I mean, but anyway, so my point is that the experiences that James O'Barr may have had, you can, people who, who seem like they're a lot smarter than I am are convinced that a certain level of grief can give you something akin to PTSD, Right where you've been hurt so fucking bad that it's basically it's left you with PTSD. And if you know anything about PTSD, one of the things that you're going to understand is that most patients have at least one or two triggers. All right. There are one or two things that will induce whatever their symptoms are. If it's, uh, if, if it's, uh, fury, then it's going to be fury. Or if it's crying, then it's going to be crying. Or if it's a panic attack, then it's a panic attack. You know, whatever, whatever their symptoms are, certain things, generally speaking, can be counted upon to induce those symptoms. Well, yeah, sure, fine. Symptoms. It will induce those symptoms in the patient, right? And so it just kind of makes me think. Touching certain people that Shelley knew or else had a very intense uh, encounter with or interaction with or seeing certain things or seeing certain people or hearing certain things basically forces Eric to relive the events of the night of his murder as well as Shelley's own murder. And it just seems like this is just so similar. I mean, it's stylized in a, in a certain kind of sense, but this seems so similar to some of the symptoms and the triggers and, and just our general understanding of what PTSD is 
that it for again for some reason this whole PTSD angle, this mystical PTSD angle. I don't know why, but for some reason it just the fullness of that just never really occurred to me before. But boy, did it come home to roost in a big bad way during last night's rewatch, and I was especially reminded of it near the end. There's this moment. Actually, you know what? I'm going to save that. I'm going to save that for last because that really was. It actually got me a little bit choked up. So I'm actually going to save that for the end, lest I turn into a big blubbering crybaby right here in front of everything. So anyway, moving right along, basically from there, what happens is Eric goes on this just fucking epic, fucking epic killing spree. And honestly, there's a sense in which the killing spree that Eric goes on, this quest for vengeance that he's on, depending on how you look at it, this is arguably... I mean... Look, anytime you you write a novel or anytime you you write a screenplay in the writing world, they call it the promise of the premise, all right? There has to be a point, generally speaking, there has got to be a point somewhere in your novel or somewhere in your screenplay or just fucking whatever where you embrace the concept of what you're doing in this story, you embrace that with both fucking arms, all right? And I'll give you a good example of what I'm talking about. There's a point in Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indiana Jones has decided, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to go on this big adventure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find this thing, and that's what happens. And so I think it's a, a bar, I think it's in Cairo. Of, of course, now I'm... Now I'm blanking on the exact location, but basically it's uh, wherever it's Marion's bar, put it that way. And so from basically from 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 then on to I want to say just about the time Indiana Jones really does start closing in now on uh, on the arc. It's one fist fight after another. It's one narrow escape after another. There are chases. There's this. There's that. That's the promise of the premise, right? The, the premise of Indiana Jones in general, but fuck it. We're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, so let's talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is supposed to be kind of a 1930s-style um, serial adventure film. That's the premise, all right. And so, well, what do you see in those old uh, and a lot of those old uh, like 1930s and 40s adventure serials? Well, you see a lot of fights. You see a lot of uh, a lot of car chases. You see a lot of narrow escapes and cliffhangers and all that shit. And that is the premise of the movie. Indiana Jones is going to be doing all that stuff. And so in a certain sense, it doesn't really matter what artifact he's chasing. If it's... Um, the 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 Ark of the Covenant, or if it's the Holy Grail, or just fucking whatever, you know, whatever it is that he's chasing, that is really incidental. The premise is that he does all of these different things. He has these chases, he has these fights, these uh, these uh, cliffhangers, and and all that stuff. That's the promise of the premise, and or rather, that's the premise. And the promise of the premise is fulfilled when Indiana Jones starts doing all of that shit in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so as it goes for The Crow, which is at its core a story about revenge, you've got to have this point in the movie where you embrace the promise of the premise with both arms. And that's what happens. Once, Basically, uh, once Eric catches up with T-Bird and then going right on through till he finishes, he settles all family business with Skank, that's the promise of the premise. And it's it's Eric. He's got the makeup on and the big leather uh, trench coat and all that stuff. He's running around the city. He's shooting guns. He's throwing knives. He's beating the shit out of people. He's killing other people, etc. And that's the promise of the premise. And the reason I'm being such a pain in the ass about this is to say that this is... There are certain things that we see in the movie during that sequence of events when Eric is on his killing spree. There are certain things that we see in the movie that make a certain amount of dramatic sense, but they don't really make a whole lot of logical sense. <clears throat> For instance, 
All of this presumably takes place in one night, right? How fucking many dinners uh, uh, does... What is this girl? Does Sarah... How many dinners does Sarah eat in a single night? The answer seems to be at least three or four. I mean, seems like every time I turn around, she's eating something, you know? And it's just... It's one of those things that, you know, if you're not paying attention to it, it might slip right by you. But it's, you know, this this movie is supposed to take place all in one night, as far as I know. And so it's, are, how can anybody possibly be that hungry? And so you get the idea that maybe this script was written such that it actually took place over a couple of days. But somewhere in the rewrite, somebody decided, you know what, this all needs to take place in one night. But they forgot to change the number of, or the amount of food. That Eric, that not Eric, that uh, Sarah is uh, eating because that's a fucking shit ton of food to eat in one night, guys. So anyway, it's just kind of weird. It, whatever. Maybe I'm the only one who who's bothered by that. But anyway, so uh, moving right along, maybe to get away from something that's all this technical stuff. I don't know. One of the things that I kind of like about this film is the fact that this is not. I don't think that this is that uh, the crow is officially considered to be a noir film. Not really, because noir has it has certain uh, conventions to it. You know, there are certain things that you generally associate with film noir that the best you can say is. The Crow doesn't completely honor those things, you know, not really. So maybe this is neo-noir, I, I don't know. But either way, one of, the, one of the defining elements of noir is the fact that there are no heroes. There's, no, there's really no such thing as heroism. Even your protagonist, it's fine to call him a protagonist, probably not too accurate to call him a hero. Because he's got a dark side of his own. But he's certainly better than everybody else because, man, is he surrounded by a bunch of fucking lowlives. And we definitely see a lot of lowlives in, in the film. And I think one of the things that actually makes this, this movie work for me is Eric isn't... And I mean resurrected Eric. I mean, we don't really see normal, real-life, everyday Eric a whole lot in this film. Really, at all. I think he has one line, and then that's it. So we don't really see too much of him. But what we do see of resurrected Eric is this is a guy who is driven by anger, driven by vengeance. And I would say, in no small degree, he is driven by cruelty. You know? And... It's one of those things where you make your protagonist too angry, too vengeful, too cruel and all that. You run the risk of losing losing the audience's sympathies, you know? And so, number one, obviously no filmmaker wants to do that. But it's like, number two, how do you portray Eric in any other way that really makes sense? And so... What it seems like the the creators of the movie, it seems like their approach was was basically to say, all right, look, this is who this guy is in this film. Uh, he's he is a one man killing machine, and so he doesn't really smile a whole lot. He doesn't really have a whole lot to be happy about, and so we're stuck with that. That can't change. So let's give him as many possible reasons uh, to be angry and bitter and vengeful and cruel and spiteful and all that. Let's give him as many reasons to be those things as we possibly can. So you see those scenes where it's implied that Shelley gets raped. You don't really see anything, which I'm thankful for, but it's definitely implied that, number one, she gets beaten to within an inch of her life, and then number two... She definitely gets dishonored. So there's that. So in a certain kind of way, when you watch the movie, you're kind of already on Eric's side. It's like, 
Geez, look, I mean, it's one thing to, like, shoot somebody, but, man, those guys really did cross the line. Yeah, go get them, Eric. The other thing is the the performances in this movie, Eric sort of benefits by comparison to everybody, really, except for Sarah and Albrecht. But basically, Eric, for as bad as he might be, as we see him in this movie, he's still... Better than T-Bird, better than Skank, better than Tintin, better than Funboy, etc., etc. He's better than all those people. I mean, those people are just real pieces of shit. And so what ends up happening is this does kind of fulfill the, at least one element of uh, noir where there are no heroes. Well, there are no heroes in, in, in The Crow. I mean, maybe Albrecht. Sergeant Albrecht comes closest, but eh, even that, I, I mean, I don't know. He's kind of ineffectual, so how much of a hero is he really? So, I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things that I, I just, I can't help thinking that in, in lesser hands, this really could have gotten bungled, you know? So it's like, on the one hand, yeah, Sarah has a kind of unnecessary amount of meals, during the runtime of this movie, which I'm just willing to put up to the fact that, you know, nobody's perfect. We're all human. And in any case, it makes dramatic sense for her to have those interactions with other characters. And we can maybe overlook the fact that she's getting a lot of food, you know, just try to try to overlook that. Makes it easier to do so when the characters kind of complement each other and and in such a way so anyway so there's that so the thing that uh that i really noticed and reacted to during my rewatch last night there's this little bit at the end of the movie where as far as eric knows it's all done it's all over he's killed skank and that was the last of the gang that attacked him and shelly and so as far as eric is concerned his mission is accomplished and he can go on and rest in peace, basically. And there's this moment after Skank is dead, and again, as far as Eric knows, he has done what he set out to do, the mission has been completed, it's finished. He's just kind of hanging around on the street, and he just looks up further ahead, and he sees these kids that are wearing Halloween costumes and playing in the street and just having fun hanging out with each other and he just laughs you know he does laugh at other times in the movie but it's this kind of bitter and sadistic sort of laugh whereas the laugh that he shows when he or rather the laugh that he has whenever he sees these uh, kids that are just chasing each other around in the street and just having a good old time with their halloween costumes and all that this is more like from the soul like like almost like purification i fucking need this and so number one it's just it's a good moment in the movie that i guess just for some reason i never really again never really picked up on in the past but the other thing is by all rights seeing those kids seeing the bright lights seeing them you know run and chase each other around and all that should have triggered him that should have induced another reliving of the night that uh, he and Shelley were were murdered and it didn't he is truly free and that is where the laughter came from you know this laughter of joy of genuine pleasure of relief and also just the fact that he can enjoy something so wholesome as children uh, playing with each other uh, in celebration of Halloween the fact that he's able to do that now and it's just for some reason, all these years I'd seen the movie and I just never really picked up on that before. Whereas this time I finally did. And I, I don't know, sometimes it's just the smallest things that maybe that's the stuff that that needs extra time to set in. You know, maybe that's... Certain things take time to bake, all right? Certain ideas need time to really work their way into your heart. I guess, and you know, when when you, when you just start thinking about just how horrifying uh, Eric 
uh, Eric's death and then his resurrection surely must have been for him to have that one moment of innocence, of purity, of catharsis, of relief. You know, you can, you, I mean, it, it, it's, it's just, it's weird that I, I never noticed it before, but boy, I noticed it last night. And I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, I did kind of get choked up. It's like, this is probably the happiest moment that this, that this guy's had in a long fucking time, you know? And he's, I don't know. It just, it, it works for me is the point. It just, it just works for me. So anyway, and that is, uh, honestly, that's probably about as much as I've got to say about the crow. I just, I don't know. It, like I say, sometimes you, you need to see something again for like the 17th time before you can truly appreciate the, the fullness of what you're dealing with. And just get a real sense of what this is and what this means. And certainly that was the case with with the uh, crow during last night's rewatch. So anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for the crow. Now, to wrap up this uh, Halloween series, basically what I decided to do, because I'm so clever, is talk about one of the Halloween movies. And honestly, I think I'm get there are so many Halloween movies to choose from, even though I've already recorded next week's episode at the time that I'm recording this right now. I already know what next week's episode is going to be. But even though I've already recorded next week's episode, I think I'm going to do a little bit of mystery box stuff with you guys. I think I just want to keep you guessing on this. Let you try to guess what Halloween movie I'm going to be talking about next week. And just to kind of give you guys a hint, the answer is not what you think. So, anyway, but that's for next week. So, I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So, bye everybody. I will see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? 
feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.